0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Horses with me, Meg Parkinson, and you are listening to episode 49, slowly creeping our way up to that 50. Um, I hope I find you well, I hope that your week is chugging along, ticking along, and you're managing to find a little bit of space to breathe and spend some time with your four-legged friends. The sun is glorious out here, It's the second day of February as I record this Um, and we're in the northern hemisphere in lovely old England and so we have made it through January. It always feels like um, the longest month somehow and now we are through it feels like spring has definitely on its way and the weather Touchwood probably will turn again. Seems to be showing signs of spring too. So as a girl who spends her life with her ponies outside, I am a very happy bunny. I've uh, I spoke to you last week about um, me making the decision of not taking Apple to the areas and deciding to go to a competition on saturday and said that was local and i am so glad i went we had such fun the whole family rocked up me my husband my daughter who is three going on 33 bless her um and it was local my best friend came with us and she called for me and it was just really really lovely um i came up against some challenges mentally uh you may have heard me refer to it as the monkey brain my monkey brain got hold of me good and proper in my first test screaming at me all of the things that it likes to shout like you're rubbish look at everyone what are they thinking of you and all of that malarkey and of course, that monkey brain, when that starts to go, the way I feel it, it like strangles my body and strangles my riding. So I become tight and all the things that I teach you and talk to you about not doing all flood into my body. And um yeah, it's 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 an interesting process. Let's just say that. So I have been prompted by that to go back and reread The Chimp Paradox, which I read years ago. Um, if you haven't read it then it's definitely worth a read if you do struggle with monkey brain and lots of voices in your head telling you horrible things. Um, I know he's recently released another book something about a jungle which I think is like practical ways to apply the uh, the chimp paradox Um, which I will definitely be diving into too, but just recognising and remembering what that monkey brain is all about and how strong that can be has just been a really great reminder to what I need to do to start to settle him. I kind of see him as a him, him down. Um, Anyway, between the classes, I vocalised this internal uh, narrative that was flooding through my brain to my husband and my friend recognizing as I was saying it how utterly ridiculous this was and just that pure kind of vocalizing it putting words to the the hubbub that was going on in my mind um, seemed to settle that monkey brain down it's like it was like he'd been heard and he'd been and recognised and then he could shut up. So <laughs> by the second test, I went in with a smile on my face and was far more relaxed. And we came out with a really lovely mark. Um, so, yeah, it was well worth a trip out. My constant challenge is my mental state of mind, um, how to create what I get at home in an atmosphere that my brain likes to go hell to leather on me that's that's my challenge one day one day we'll get there but i'll take you through that journey as as we go um ultimately we she won both our classes and we got some really lovely marks from our judge um and like i said in the last podcast i do it for fun i do it to have fun um and all of our goals were hit in a way, some way or another. Um, we came home with a smile on our face. So it was well worth a little trip out. I'm really glad I picked not to do the areas. When that day hit, oh Lord, I did not have the energy. So there was definitely something in me that knew that I wasn't gonna be able to do it. So yeah, all all good on the Western Front over here. Apple's doing really well. She's really lifting up through her thoracic sling, her front end. If you want to head down a little rabbit hole about the thoracic sling, um, I've written a fundamental basics course within the academy for that. Um, So if you're like, oh, what's the thoracic sling, Meg? Um, That's all there. It's really vital to know about um, if you ride horses that are built downhill, cob type, creatures or thoroughbreds that are built to push into their shoulder to pull and run at great speed so it's a really interesting part of the horse's anatomy often forgotten about often mistaken um, where we then get obsessed with the neck and the shape of the top line and forgetting about the actual thoracic sling muscles that create this so um, yeah it's one to get your head around but very it's really i find it in my own geekish way really interesting and it has massively just revising that refocusing that falling a little further down the rabbit hole because we're always learning has really helped me in my thoughts about how i school apple about how i ride or what i'm asking from her all the way through to her stable setup um where where the levels that everything is at Um, to try to create more movement through that thoracic sling so it doesn't get too set down so that's been really interesting we had the Charlie who does our horse massage therapy body worker whatever you want to call them she came out this week and yeah it was really good um, to see that work playing through in the muscles etc so that's really nice So ultimately, here on the farm, we are we're we're chugging along quite well. I'm planning the diary for the year ahead. So that's all good fun and prospects, etc. Although I did giggle to myself the other day that the last time I felt like this, I think, was in 2020, February 2020. Now, we all know what happened by the end of February 2020. So I apologise now. (laughs) But right now, I feel like I've got a good plan for the year. Anyway, um, today I am going to come back off a webinar that I taught last night. If you haven't caught it yet, it's now on the Academy to listen back. It's about an hour and a half of me diving in to the canter seat. So everything uh, kind of biomechanically needed in the canter seat So we're going to take a brief brushstroke across that today. Hopefully it sparks your interest and maybe you'll go in and delve into that further. So if you're a rider that struggles with the canter seat, loses your stirrups in canter, feels like you jar or um, kind of uh, not working with your horse in canter, struggles to maintain the canter, struggles to get the canter, then this is kind of like a brief brush into that and hopefully it'll get you thinking a little bit. Um, so I'll see you on the other side. The canter seat is one of probably the first big, like, after learning how to rise, rise trot, the canter seat is one of the first big woo-hoo moments of riders it In most riding journeys and i 'm not and I say most it might not have been in yours, but in most riding journeys it 's kind of the first time we come across having to be in the saddle while our horse is is creating power underneath us. Most people tend to go through the journey of learning to walk, learning to rise trot, then learning to canter and sit trot comes later. So um, it's the first kind of thing that we really come up against, that process of how do we stabilise ourselves and are mobile enough to follow our horse. And for some people, they're lucky enough to have a coach that recognises these challenges and creates exercises and works with them that they can find that nice, sweet spot. And for others, it can feel like a lifelong challenge in its own self. And canter becomes then this kind of light at the end of this very long road and for those people this is what this podcast is all about this is what we're going to try and like unpick a little bit obviously every person's riding journey is quite bespoke but i hope to cover um this from a variety of different angles what normally happens with riding is it's never one thing it's normally a multitude of a few different things happening all at once And that's why we struggle to find the remedy. Um, That's why it can feel like you're trudging uphill, pushing treacle uphill sometimes, because you might get someone tell you, well, just do this. And that feels a little better, but other bits then fall apart. And another person says, oh, just do this. So you try something different. And I totally understand that people trying to help people coming from their own perspective. The problem with that is, Unless we take a 360 whole world view of it, we can easily miss those points. So let's get started. So the cantor seat is um, a seat that requires good, strong, but mobile hip flexors and glutes. So the pelvic stability muscles need to have an element of strength about them. And they also need to have an element of mobility about them. Now, what quite often happens in us humans, especially with the kinds of lives we lead, is we either become incredibly strong, but we have very little movement or we become quite weak and can either have very little movement or have too much. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry. So we need to kind of find that balance as a rider to create a canter seat that is worthy of following a horse's movement. So the first thing I would recommend that you do, if you can, is to watch your horse canter without you on them. So if this is the case of popping them up on the lunge with the saddle on the back, and I would say it would be really helpful if you do girth up and put the saddle on, because the saddle kind of brings the mind and the focus to how much movement is actually going through the horse's back through the canter. Now, different horses will have different amounts of movement. Extravagantly moving horses will have big moving backs, ultimately big moving saddles. Much less kind of more toddery horses will probably have a much smoother canter, less movement, but there'll still be an element of movement there. And because the canter is a three beat gate where where the horse has either a left lead canter or a right lead canter, each rein the back moves slightly differently but in a mirrored way so if for example it drops the saddle a little bit through the left side on the left lead it would then drop the saddle a little bit through the right side on the right lead so it's mirrored movement but it's not the same on both reins and this plays really into the hands of the uh, symmetrical gods let's just say this because if you are, and we all are, weaker through one side, have more mobility through through one side, you will find one canter lead much easier to ride than the other, pure and simple. And that's because of the way the horse moves. So to get your brain and your mind and your thoughts thinking about actually how much movement the house has, a great way to do this is saddle up your horse, pop them on a lunge and get them cantering around you so you can watch that saddle move. And what you have to think then is you, your body needs to be able to mobilise to match that movement. And you'll be quite surprised with how much movement that's there. So quite often, one of the first issues with cantering is the rider doesn't have the range of motion or movement within their body to match the horse's canter. So they end up shutting the canter down or if the horse is a big mover that's not too bothered by the rider, so for example a big 17-18 hand thing and you're a tiny little pea on top, you end up just being bounced and jarred, and that's purely because we're not matching the movement. So this happens either when we're learning to canter, um, it can happen when even if we're an established rider but we change horses, because our body patterning gets used to one type of canter and then we move to a different kind of canter, Most of the time, let's be honest, if we do change horses, we upgrade. So we tend to, we might have had a horse that did us well for a certain level of riding that we were, but now we want something a bit bigger. But we have to recognise that the, the thing that we're going to get that has bigger movement, whether it's bigger jumps, bigger cantering, whatever it is, needs us to move bigger as well and again that's easily and quite often forgotten when we switch from one horse to another and if you've learnt to ride on one horse or you've built quite a quite uh, uh, many years riding just one horse moving horses can really throw the canter and throw your movement and that can be enough to just kind of scare you slightly put the nerves into you or just make you think, what's going wrong? What am I doing wrong? And it's purely the fact that their movement is different. It's either bigger or smaller to the movement that we're used to. Now, coming from a big movement to a smaller movement is much, much, much easier than going from a small movement to a big movement because reducing the range of movement is much easier to do than increasing the range of movement because reducing means we just got to switch the muscles on increasing the movement we have means we have to probably lengthen some muscles as well as strengthen them so we've got some extra work to do so by just popping your horse on the lunge and watching their saddle go around on each rein you will start to get a get a view of what your pelvis has got to be able to follow and you'll probably be quite shocked at how much your pelvis has got to follow. Um, Don't be put off by it because you are cantering and um, you have done it but you might start to go I'm just not moving enough and that could be the simplest ones of your answers is that by increasing your movement your range of movement within the saddle you then just start to match your horse much more and become less jarring. The re, like I said, the reasons we don't naturally increase our movement is because we become habitually into movement patterns. So and we're also a little bit scared of looking messy. I will address that because I think it's a really important point in today's world. We are constantly shown images of perfection, whether that's within general life or riding. So we show riders at their best moment in time, doing it perfectly this is lovely because it gives us inspiration and it makes us think that 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 can be done but it also has a harmful side and for riders what it does is it means we become scared of the messy middle because we think that if it's messy we must be doing it wrong because we never see the messy stuff we never see these riders learning the skill we only see them once they've learnt the skill and when we're learning a skill It's really bloody messy. There's a whole load of like, it feels weird, it feels different. The body has to get used to a new patterning. The muscles have to get used to a new way of working. And there's this whole kind of really horrid, messy bit. And what quite often happens nowadays is because we never see the messy bit and no one ever talks about the messy bit, As soon as something feels messy. You stop doing it because you think you're doing it wrong. And the fear of going into that messy middle holds people's improvement back. So we have to be open about the fact that when we learn something, it is messy. It's never it's never smooth. If any of you watch your version of Strictly come dancing. So you might be I think it's dancing with the stars abroad. and you watch them in the week running up to them learning the the completed dance, they don't just learn the dance and look amazing. They step on each other's toes, they have to go through it really slowly, they fall over, they fall out it looks a mess it, it's messy it's the messy middle. The learning process is messy, and it only by them going through that process though do they come out the other side and be able to perform a reasonably reasonably or sometimes amazing dance but every person when we learn something and when our horses learn something it's messy unfortunately with social media the way it is is if anyone dared to put the messy middle on social media you would have the keyboard coaches as we call them some other people might call them trolls but the keyboard coaches lay hell to leather into these people saying that they're doing it wrong and they they should be sitting quieter and they should be doing this and they should be doing that without the realization that actually it's in the middle this is the messy middle and no matter how much we try we have to have that messy bit now ultimately obviously we don't want to be putting our horse in any sort of harm or discomfort but what I'm talking about is the feeling that you get when you're learning something so when we take it into the canter seat, when you're learning to create movement within your body, you have to effectively over move. You have to go past where your brain is saying this is comfortable, this is neat, this is tidy, this is good. And you have to go through the bit where, you, where your brain's going, whoa, this is too much, this is big, this is huge, I don't like this. This is, And you have to go into that to start to discover that your body can move. From the outside, from an external point of view, someone watching you, it probably wouldn't look too messy at all. But inside that monkey brain will be screaming at you that you're doing it all wrong because it's different to what you're used to doing. So to create a larger movement pattern within your body does mean that you have to be prepared to get a little bit loose and a little bit messy to start with. So that's really, really key to understanding. And as you work on anything and you start to change anything within your riding, whether it's focused on this today or something similar, There will be a process where it feels so weird that your brain is telling you it must be wrong. And all I come back to is trust the process, understand that that is going to come and don't let that back you away from it. So you have the rider's seat and the rider's seat needs to follow this movement of the horse. And it's a three beat movement and it ends up being a little bit of kind of like a rolling wave not a wave that just goes forwards and back if you watch boats on a harbour as the tide kind of changes where the boats kind of lift up and back at the front and then side to side as well they end up with this kind of rolling movement of the boat and that's effectively the kind of thing that your pelvis needs to be able to do when you're riding in your canter it needs to be able to not just rock forwards and back but it needs to have a left and right side too And as you start to feel into that, you'll start to actually follow the movement. Now, what else restricts this? So there's simple things that we already know that I've spoken to you about before. Things like your nervous system and your movement patterns when you're in the state of fight and flight. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, cantering will naturally bring up that state because we're going faster. So if you have any sort of conscious nerves about cantering, that will play into your ability of your pelvis following your horse's movement. When our nerves come up, our pelvis gets locked and it becomes less mobile and much more fixed. This isn't going to help your canter seat because that lockedness is going to create much more of a jar and you're not going to be able to follow that movement of your horse's back. But even unconscious stress system can come up. So I have a lot of people say to me, well, I know I'm not nervous, Um, Because I don't feel nervous. So there are two very different kind of levels of stress systems. There are the stress systems where you are so aware of it, you can't deny it. So you might be feeling really nervous, really sick. You might be feeling like really angry or really upset. And then there's the unconscious nervous system that is that's running and is on high alert. But you're not necessarily fully aware of it. And the way you become aware of it is the objectifiable bits rather than the feeling. So it's not about the feeling it's about. So if if you get on and you and you and your pelvis doesn't feel like it's moving, it's a sign that you're in the stress nervous system. Whether you feel nervous, whether you feel stressed or not, it is a sign. If your shoulders feel tight, tense, locked together, that is a sign that you're in the nervous system. If you are breathing quite quickly, talking fast, talking quite high pitched, all of that are signs that you're in a high, in the higher stress of the nervous system. You might, your brain might be telling you that you feel fine, but if you, so a sign for me is when I get on at a show, if I feel like I need to shorten my stirrups by one hole because my legs aren't long enough, I know that that's my hips locking up and that's me feeling nervous. That's not me effectively feeling nervous. I would never tell you I felt nervous. I don't have any butterflies. I don't have sickness. I don't feel like my heart is racing a billion times. I don't feel anything else. But I know that the fact my stirrups don't feel their normal length, that I feel like someone's creeped in in the night and made them a hole longer, that's telling me I'm holding tension, which is telling me I'm in in my sympathetic nervous system and I'm in that state of kind of high anxiety so that tells me whether I feel it or not that I need to do something about it so understanding that this 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 feeling can affect it so if you go if you've been riding around perfectly fine you go up into canter and suddenly you lose all your stirrups that is a sign that your pelvis and your hips have gone tight which is a sign that your nervous system has switched into the sympathetic nervous system Okay, so it's not just a case of what you feel as in like emotionally feel, it's what you are feeling within your body as signs too. And it's up to you to learn those signs because by learning those signs you can start to actually unravel them. So if you're a stirrup loser, your nervous system could just be clicking you over into sympathetic and locking your hips up. By doing that, that shortens the angle of the pelvis to the thigh and it means your legs come shorter and you lose your stirrups. So some people might call it gripping up. um, And it's just the fact that there's something going on in your pelvis that is creating that shortness and tightness in the muscles. So understanding, um, first of all, that your the ability to follow your horse's movement is greatly compromised when you switch into the sympathetic nervous system so at the start of this podcast I spoke to you about how I felt like my monkey brain strangles my riding so when I get into my monkey brain I get into my sympathetic nervous system and I can literally feel my hips tightening every stride and no matter how much I tell myself drop your legs drop your legs I can just feel them tighten as that monkey brain shouts more and more so my legs become shorter Um, I start searching for my stirrups, my feet come away and the whole and the spiral unravels not in the best way. So understanding that you are when you move into that sympathetic nervous system, and how that affects your body is really, really key. Now, if, if it happens to you every time you canter, we need to think about finding management mechanisms to help you. So things like working on your breathing, making sure you are maintaining breathing things like making sure you can still feel your feet. Now, that's really hard if you lose your stirrups. So you might find for a temporary fix, not a permanent, but a temporary fix by shortening your stirrups by one hole so you can maintain stirrup pressure, maintain sole of foot pressure into the canter. That might calm your nervous system down enough that your hips can stay unlocked and you're able to follow your horse's movement. Stirrup length also plays into why we sometimes can't follow the movement. So I will move into that as we're on the subject anyway. So the longer your stirrups are, the more pelvic mobility you need. You have to have a bigger range of movement in your hip flexors and a bigger range of movements in your glutes. The shorter the stirrups in the canter, the less range of movement you need. And it's purely through the angle of the torso to the thigh. When you roll through and you follow the horse's movement in canter, if your stirrups are long, that angle has to open so much more. And it's quite a considerable amount more than if you're riding shorter. So each hole you go down longer, you are requiring your hips to open more. You're requiring to have much more range of movement in your hips. So if your hips are affected by your nervous system and you hold your tension in your hips, riding slightly shorter will help you with that because you won't have to even when you are tense she says you won't have to move anywhere near as big than if you had your stirrups longer also if you know that you hold tightness in your hip flexors and in your glutes riding long will inhibit your ability to follow the horse's movement when you're when you're locked up so you will end up jarring losing balance etc so you need to have a real kind of honest think to yourself do I am I riding too long for my pelvic capabilities right now now I'm not saying you stop that forever but what you need to do is find this balance of length of stirrup matching what you can do now plus off horse unmounted work and also no stirrup work to help increase your ability to lengthen your stirrups at a later date. So you're kind of working towards a long stirrup, but just dropping your stirrups and not doing the work is never going to help you. So if you have been encouraged to lengthen your stirrups, but now you've suddenly found that you're hitting issues, that is probably a sign that your pelvis, your hips haven't got the range of movement required for the canter with this longer stirrup. So you need to think about how do I create more range of movement in my pelvis? That's your unmounted work, your equa stretch and all the stuff I teach online. But that is, you need to be putting that in to help create that movement and also probably shortening your stirrups up temporarily so you don't cause more issues to then know that you're going to lengthen them at a later date. So length of stirrups make a big difference in your canter because of the angle of the hip flexor and what is required at that moment in time. Another thing that makes a difference in the canter is, is, And the ability to follow the canter is the kind of saddle that you're in and whether it's helping or hindering you. Now, there's a lot of conversations online if you follow it, if you're on Instagram and in the equestrian community about blocks and high cantles and things like that in dressage saddles. And some of and I am doing my own research. I think it's really interesting points, but one of the biggest points that I really genuinely do believe is we have to have the body mobility to match the saddle. So the more you are locked in to a saddle, so the higher the cantle, the bigger the block, the more range of movement you need to have in your body because otherwise you'll just get thrown around all over the place, or you'll feel like you're getting stuck and you'll be sticking your horse what I mean by thrown around all over the place is effectively you'll be like seat belting your bottom path to the bottom path to the saddle and then your upper body will eventually get a bit of whiplash as it gets thrown so you need to have the ability to move with the same amount of range of motion so the the, the, the higher the cantle, the bigger the block, the longer your leg length is going to be required to be. And therefore, then, your more range of mov- movement is required. So if you do have a saddle with a high cantle and a big block, it's not the end of the world. Even no matter what you read online, it's not the end of the world. I know these saddles cost an absolute fortune. So don't go and, like, cry into a pillow. It's fine. But what you need to recognise is that saddle is going to ask much more of your body's range of motion and mobility than a saddle with a smaller block, no block, just a knee roll and a lower cantle. Because with with the, the saddles with nothing, yes, do require a little bit more strength, but you can get away with having a little bit less range of motion. So we just need to be aware of how the saddle is affecting us too. And of course, like I said before, your horse's canter will also be in there too. So if you're used to riding quite a stuffy canter and you suddenly move on to a big, big bowling canter, that's going to be a key change in how much movement you need. The bigger the movement of the horse, the bigger the movement required from the rider to match that movement of the horse. So they're kind of the key basics of focusing on what can be playing into why we can't sit into the saddle. And it really does come down to having a quality mobile seat. So you need to have the ability to strengthen and support yourself when required, but also move and open those um, angles when required because the canter creates this kind of opening and closing of all angles of the seat throughout, throughout the three beats of the rhythm throughout the one stride and we need to be able to follow that. The next stage we need to think about is then how we create security within that so balance isn't enough so just having that movement and being able to match the horse's movement is better than nothing but that's that's not enough what we then want to be able to do is secure ourselves so we're not rocking we're not like just balancing we're actually locked into the saddle but we also need to be able to catch our horse's energy too by riding half halts, and that comes from a midline pressure so your thighs coming inwards not the backs of your thighs but your inner thighs coming in towards the saddle and when you start to think about that and applying the midline pressure and thinking about mobility People then run into another issue. So when you start to apply midline pressure, so if you think about bringing your thighs towards one another, that muscle activation then restricts the range of movement that our pelvis has. So you might have huge range of movement when you're not applying that inward pressure the second you apply that inward pressure your range of movement is greatly diminished so we have to think about doing exercises off the horse that create not only range of movement in the pelvis but also midline pressure happening at the same time and so we can work on creating a longer stronger muscle structure with the correct kind of levels of pressure and not just one kind because otherwise we're only hitting one part as i said right at the start it's a multitude of things So you might find that you grip in with your thighs and then you don't feel you can follow your horse so much. So then you have to really activate and feel for that movement a little more. And it's kind of finding that balance. So, again, understanding how our body is working, understanding the range of movement that we need to have. And where it is coming from is really key. So another reason riders might bang or jar Is because they are fixing or holding tension through their upper body and the angle of their torso to thigh is small and locked. So they end up pitching forwards a little bit and kind of coming out of the saddle and back in, out of the saddle and back in, kind of heading towards the fetal position. But that feeling of protection. So for me as a coach watching that is there's quite a few things happening there. Nervous system has gone out of control. So the the brain is saying we're, we're worried about something. We're worried about our balance. Um, so everything has locked up tight. The stirrups then become too long for the rider. So they then start to lose stirrups, which plays into the nervous system, feeling even more worried. Um, and they end up tilting forwards which then also again that out of balance plays into the nervous system so we need to think about creating more of an open hip how do we do that as I said through unmounted exercises but also we need to calm that nervous system down so we need to check riders are breathing we need to check their stirrup length is the right length for them to canter from and we need to make sure that they feel safe so if you are struggling with your canter and you feel like you're running up against a brick wall hopefully that's a few things to focus on and think about but also you need to think about how are you going to make yourself feel safe in this canter now a lot of people would suggest no stirrups as you well know if you've listened to me i'm a little bit wary on no stirrups i don't disagree with their benefit i think no stirrup work is incredibly beneficial but we have to go into it with our eyes open if we don't, aren't aware of what our hands are doing if we aren't aware of how we're holding our reins and the kind of pressures we're putting on our reins whilst we're practicing our no stirrups we end up balancing off of our horse's mouths more than actually improving our seat so that we have to be super aware of and the other thing is is that gripping up I said at the start can really come into it when we haven't got stirrups so if you're Feet coming out of the stirrups isn't a functionality thing as in you have range of movement every other time. But just when you canter, it disappears and is more of a nervous system thing. No stirrup work is not going to help you because no stirrup work is going to play into the nervous system, amping up even more. So your hips are going to become tighter. If you know that you have you ha- your nervous system is completely under control and it's quite calm and relaxed. And you want to just help your hips move a bit more. No steer at work will help a little bit. Okay, so it's using the tools for the right thing. You cannot use no steer at work for someone who's already in fight flight nervous system because all that's going to happen is everything's going to get tighter. They're going to bounce more. And in the end, they're going to end up pobbling off the side or feeling so nervous that they can't actually control themselves. That's not helped at all. So no steer at work works. If the rider is fully calm and you can 100% say their nervous system isn't amping up because of this, it will not work if if the nervous system is partly to play for why they can't sit in the saddle or stay with the horse. Lunge work will definitely help, taking the control of the situation to the person in the middle if you're on a horse that can be lunged, brilliant. And also, what's really interesting is a long rain canter work. So, you are telling your brain you've got nothing to hold on to with your hands, and then suddenly the brain will start to use the body, the seat will come in, and everything will start to move a lot better. So, no rain work can be really good, and that no rain work can work pretty well with people with. Um, that's nervous system is amping up as well because the brain has to go well I can't hold with my hand so I've got to do something else and it kind of overrides the fixing and the movement. Speed of your canter is also key too. If you're struggling to stay with your horse the slower the canter the less movement there is. So maintaining and establishing a good tempo a good speed that will help you to balance is really key just kind of cantering out on the grass tracks as fast as you can and trying to work out how you sit into it is really hard. You will know that extending a canter is really hard to sit you over collecting so if you know that you're struggling with that movement then the slower more collected paces will help you establish it so try not to go too quickly in the canter. Canter can actually be quite slow and also thinking about Now we're thinking about your rein. So if you are okay riding, cantering on your left rein, but you struggle with your right rein, that's a sign that you've got all the mobility that you need, that the nervous system isn't kicking in. But what you've got is you've got one side of your body that's working really well and one side of your body that's a bit jammed up. And if that's you, then we definitely need to be looking at off horse work to level you back up, to make you a bit more symmetrical. Um, and creating the movement patterns within your body to then place that back through the horse if you are only having this on one horse we also have to look at the horse and check that they're not trying to shift you or move you into a certain position because they're struggling with cantering on that lead leg so we need to be clear of that so again lunge work with the horse without the rider on will tell us that if they struggle with canter lead leg without the rider then of course that's partly them to play too and then we have to be super on it if we're going to help them with it. So that leads us into how do we get our canter. Um, If you struggle with establishing canter or creating a canter transition again there's a few things that that might be happening. If you're asking for canter out of a trot and you struggle to sit into the trot well enough this is going to screw up your canter transition. Because the second you go to sit trot, you start, if you can't support yourself in sit trot, you'll start to grip up, you'll tighten, your pelvis will tighten, your your sympathetic nervous system will kick in and everything will go a bit haywire. Um, And then you're going to be asking for canter out of this state in your body. So, of course, you're not going to be able to follow your horse's movement anywhere near as much. So if that's you, you've got a few options to take. One, practice your sit trot make sure you have got a good enough sit trot to ask for canter and what I mean by that is you need to be able to sit into the saddle and move your legs towards where the canter aids are so you can't be kind of like frozen rigid in the sit trot you need to feel able to make requests and set your horse up in the best way possible so working on your sitting trot will be really key to helping your canter transition. The other thing the other the other thing I always look at is my saying that makes no sense to anyone else. But total sense to me is a transition is a transition is a transition. And what I mean by that is if your horse isn't listening to you in the walk trot transitions, there's no way that they're going to listen to you in the counter transition. If the communication lines are confused and twisted and the wires are all a bit muddled in the walk trot transitions, then again, they're not going to suddenly become clear in the canter transitions so if you struggle with a canter transition you have to be really pernickety and detailed about your other transitions maybe the slightly easier ones to ride and check that they're absolutely spot on when you place your leg or whatever age you use your horse to go forwards that they listen that they respond that they understand what you're asking from them so that's really really important um, quite often people struggle with the counter transition and when I look at their other transitions, their other transitions are quite vague. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And by working on those other transitions, the counter transition sorts itself out because it's just the lines of communication that have been a bit kind of wishy-washy and so the counter then becomes wishy-washy. So making sure all the transitions below your counter one are perfect is really key to creating a good counter transition. You will not get a good quality canter transition on both reins if you have a rubbish trot transition or a rubbish walk transition. So, that's something to really be aware of. The next thing is how you organise your body. So, when you ask for canter, unlike trot and walk, you are asking for a specific leg to strike off. So, you're asking for their outside hind leg to pick up the canter lead. Trot, we're just asking them to push off into trot, walk, we're asking them to push off into walk. But in canter, we're saying that leg is the leg I want you to start to canter on. So that's why the aid is to bring the outside leg slightly back behind the girth, to bring the horse's mind to that outside hind leg. Now, you need to be able to organise your body into this position. So if you're asking from it from sit-truck, you need to be able to organise your body into the correct position to ask for this canter. You also need to understand that your horse needs to be on the correct bend for the canter. So you can't have them bending to the outside whilst you're asking for the correct lead leg canter transition because their body will not be set up to create that canter. So understanding how to organise yourself and your horse into being in the right place at the right time to get the canter transition. And again, so many people get learned to canter through just trotting into the corner as fast as you can, kick the horse and they'll canter. And there's absolutely so much more to that than that. It's not about the speed of the trot, it's about the responsiveness of the horse. Um, So you can go into it at a very steady trot, you can ask for canter out of a walk, you can ask for canter out of a halt. But what you do need to do is have clear, concise aids. So if you get a bit muddled with your aids, that's going to muddle the transition. And bear in mind that when you're on the right rein, your left leg needs to come back a little bit. When you're on the left rein, your right leg needs to come back a little bit. So again, we need to have that clarity that we can organise ourselves in each direction. And we don't repeat the same aid on the other rein, hoping to get a different lead leg. Again, often seen because we we ride very one sided. So that's unmounted stuff as well. Be creating body awareness which is what I spoke with you last week on making sure that you have that understanding of what you're asking within your body and you also have the understanding of where your horse needs to be within their movements they need to be on the correct bend they need to be pushing through from behind they ideally need the front load a little bit lightened so they can really step underneath themselves to push up into the canter So understanding all of that, setting yourself up to win, I call it, make sure all of those fundamental basics are there before you ask for the canter is really, really key. And if you find that you can't rotate your ribcage one way and you can rotate it the other, then that's the work you need to do off your horse so you can get even rotation through your ribcage each way. If you find that you can't bring your left leg anywhere near comfortably as back as your right leg, you need to do the work off the horse to create that movement, range of movement in your body so you can ask for the canter in that way. And then from there, it's then asking yourself, am I better to ask for this out of a walk or out of a trot? The speed that I'm going into is really key and where in the school am I asking for this? So again, if you're struggling with a canter transition, don't ask for canter as you're heading up the straight. I see this so often. People come round the corner, they spend the whole of the short side sorting themselves out and the horse basically straightens up to go along the straight. And that's the moment they ask for canter. You've, You've basically missed a short side of the school to help you get the right canter lead. Now the horse is going straight. They can pick whichever lead leg they feel comfortable on because they aren't going into a bend. So think about where you're asking for your canter, do it as you go into a bend and not as you come out and do it as you go into a short side and not as you come out of the short side. So you've got multiple places to ask then rather than only one chance. And then you've got to wait until you get to the other end So be really kind of strict with yourself about where you ask for canter. And I would have in my mind, instead of riding large, that if I'm working on creating a good canter transition, I'm going to do it on a 20 metre circle. So I'm on a constant bend. So therefore then I can ask anywhere on that circle and get the canter. Now, if you're just teaching your horse or just getting it right for yourself, you're going to ask, you're going to set yourself up with your body, make sure you're breathing, make sure that pelvis is open, make sure you're ready to follow the movement as you go into the the short side, Hopefully your horse will pick up canter and then you'll canter a twenty metre circle. If your horse doesn't pick up canter straight away, you can repeat the aid at the end marker, so A or C. And then you can repeat it once more going into that last corner but not coming out. And then you instead of riding straight, you continue round the circle on the twenty metre circle, and then maybe re ask in the middle, maybe as you cross the centre line, as you come through the second quarter. So you've kind of got lots of opportunities to ask for canter there. And hopefully with your body awareness now, your pelvis, your openness, your stirrups at the right length for what your body can cope with, your ability to to manage your horse's speed and your clarity of your aids, you've got much more chance of being successful at creating that canter as well. And then on the final note, your your transitions of any pace bookend the pace itself. So... And a really basic, broad thing, if you get a crap transition, you're not going to have a very good canter. And a not very good canter is much harder to sit to and follow and balance and sit in with than a quality canter. So what happens is you get a rubbish transition, you get a rubbish canter. So you have to then kind of work really hard to get a good canter, which kind of takes away all of your puff and then you fall back into trot get the transition as quality as you can, that will give you a much more quality canter to ride so you can sit into it much better because you're more balanced, the horse is more balanced and then you'll get a quality downwards transition as well. So the first moment you ask for canter sets up how your canter is going to be. So we're always looking to get as quality a canter transition as we can to create as quality a canter as we can if you have a rubbish canter transition you won't get it you won't get a good canter it just doesn't happen um you you might get it after half a lap round the arena but you won't have it straight away and by the time you've done that your horse has rocked you all over the place and you're kind of back to square one so just a thought make sure that you do focus on those transitions and that they are as good as you can be and that will dramatically help your canter and your ability to stay with your horse in their canter as you do it <sighs> so that is as i said a very brief brush into the canter seat for those of you that are in the academy there is now a webinar up in the in the your seat section It's the second one along because we did an unpacking the seat webinar a few months ago. So it's the second one along and it says the canter seat. So that's a bit more detail. What I do in there is I take some videos of some pro riders. I put them through my software that I have that can slow it down. We can look at certain points. We can go back through them. So you can really get a visual feedback of what it wants to look like and how it wants to feel. Um, That's all there in the academy tonight if you're listening to this as this goes out today i've got my stretch class thursday evening so i'm now doing them on a monday evening and a thursday evening live online mondays are at 8 p.m thursdays are at 7 p.m for those of you that don't like late nights tonight we are going to be working on the canter seat so we're going to be working on everything i've talked about today pelvic movement the ability to lengthen strengthen but also midline pressure so we're going to look at all of that this evening that again will be recorded and put put into the academy too so for those of you that are members that's all there and will be there ready and waiting for you if this has piqued your interest and you want to delve a bit deeper I hope this hasn't blown your brain too much I hope it's reasonably clear any questions obviously you know where I am you know I love a good question so send them through to me either on my Instagram or a message to me email um if you're in the academy, pop them on the members' chat and um and I will be more than willing to answer. Sometimes I don't answer immediately. If you contact me personally, I will answer and say, Okay, I'll get back to you. Um sometimes I have to kind of ruminate and work it through my head, but I never want to give you something that I'm not really clear on myself. Um so that's just that's just a little point that you might not get an immediate reply. You might not have to. Have a think about it to make sure I give it clear. But ultimately, um, I'm here if you have any questions with it. And if you are struggling with your canter in any other ways, please let me know. And I will do a pod on that at a later date. Look after yourself and I will see you again or hear from you again soon. Thanks for listening the whole way through. I sound surprised, don't I? I always am. And I'm always so grateful for your support. So I'm just dropping in here to remind you that if you want, if you're enjoying these podcasts and you want to know more and learn more and get into this kind of world of rider biomechanics, then to take a check out on my website it's megparkinson.com and on there you'll find how you can work with me with a bit of detail or a bit more deeper concept I do a lot of online stuff virtual stuff so it doesn't matter where you are in the world and to have a little look around the the Aligned Rider Academy um it's under a new name yes this is the old the online riding club but the Aligned Rider Academy feels a little bit more apt as what we're teaching Um, Have a look round there, see what there is and see and maybe come and join me in it. We do so much stuff as a community. Um, There's tons of content for you to enjoy from the audio lessons to the equistretch classes, to the webinars, um, to live Instagram chats. Just so, so much. Um, I just basically put my heart and soul into the academy and so many people are loving it. So why don't you come and have a look around too? And it's only £15, £15 a month. It's like 50p a day and you get a ton, a ton of training content. So have a little look around, maybe sign up. You can cancel any time so you can do a month and then go, "Ah, I'm not really using it and you can cancel it. It's fine. I won't take (laughs) offence and um, enjoy the time with me a little bit more. But thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if I can ask you a cheeky little favour, if you have found this episode interesting or any part of this podcast interesting, could you please share with a friend? I know everyone asks on the podcasts and every podcast you listen to, everyone's like, please, please, please. But it really, really does help, especially a little small person like me trying to kind of spread the word the biggest thing that you could do to help me um build my business and help me build my customers is just share 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 spread the word about what we do if it's helped you it will help someone else you know and then if you want to even put it in your stories on social media little note on that I won't know you've shared it unless you tag me in it so tag me in it so I can see that you've shared it and I can like give you a virtual hug and say thank you um and obviously if you do like this stuff make sure you press subscribe so you get all of the latest episode dropping into your podcast app regularly that just helps you make sure you don't get left behind but I'm going to leave you there thank you thank you And I'll speak to you next time.